1: Welcome to Mental Health, Hope and Recovery. I'm Helen Sneed.
2: And I'm Valerie Milburn.
1: We both have fought and overcome severe chronic mental illnesses. Our podcast offers a unique approach to mental health conditions. We use practical skills and inspirational stories of recovery.
2: Together, Helen and I represent several decades of struggle, which makes us uniquely qualified to talk about many aspects of psychiatric diagnoses and treatment. Our knowledge is up close and personal. As we travel together in this podcast, we will delve into subjects such as depression, anxiety and personality disorders, eating and substance use disorders, and dual diagnoses.
1: We will discuss the tough topics such as self-harm and suicide. Other segments will examine the impact of the pandemic and economic downturn. We are action-oriented. We focus on treatment options, coping skills, goal-setting, relationships, and mindfulness. We hope to support you into recovery or support you as you support others, but we're not a substitute for qualified counseling or any other mental health resources.
2: Helen and I are your peers. We're not doctors, therapists, or social workers. We're not professionals, but we are experts. We are experts through our own lived experience with multiple mental health diagnoses and symptoms. Please join us on our journey.
1: We live in recovery. So can you. So today, our topic is the stages of recovery.
2: Also today, we're going to hear your story, Helen, your inspirational story of struggle and hope and recovery with your own mental health condition.
1: Well, thank you, Valerie. Um, I, I guess I am going to say to begin with, there are stages of recovery. I prefer to look on them as building blocks, because that way you can look on them something as you can sort of move around as it best it suits you and there's not necessarily a particular order and you can try one on one day and one the next but it is a process and no two people go through the stages in the same order much less chronologically that's just not possible so bear in mind that we will describe stages but we're not about to tell you how or when to use them what we can do is explain how the stages of recovery affected us What worked for us is not necessarily a model for others. For me, after years of struggle, there's one guiding truth. It's a journey of many steps, not a destination. There's a brilliant quote that has helped me keep fighting. Martin Luther King said, you don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step.
2: You're right. You said it. Recovery is... Definitely a journey, not a destination. It's such an individual process. It has no set stages. My journey has had many fits and starts, and like life, many ups and downs.
1: When we talk about stages, I almost, you know, kind of have to not laugh, but kind of frown really, because initially my identity was shattered. I just didn't have anything to work with in terms of putting myself together to move forward. Um, And also, I was a snob about survival. All I could see is that I wanted to wave a magic wand and return to the accomplished, active person I used to be. So I had no patience or capacity for breaking it down into steps.
2: I'm going to talk about that also in a little while about um, wanting to... Get back to my accomplished state. But recovery doesn't mean necessarily returning to functioning as it was before the pre symptomatic phase of a person's life. For example, I could never return to the type of stressful career I had before my illness, um, nor abandon the level of self care and supportive care that I now require. So, about that, wanting to return to my accomplished state, once when I was Lamenting to my psychiatrist that I would never achieve the goals I had set out for myself for my career when I was younger or follow that path I was on before my breakdown. He stopped me and said, wait a minute. I knew you when you were successful as you're describing successful now. He said, you weren't successful when you were successful. He said, what you're doing now with your life is what matters now in your state of recovery, is when you're successful.
1: That's a pretty sobering concept for someone like me.
2: Yeah, He he has been a cornerstone of my recovery and my biggest cheerleader, my psychiatrist. So Helen, you and I have several models of the recovery process we really like. And one is from the Indian Journal of Psychological Medicine. And this model says That the recovery mode aims to help people with mental illness and distress to, quote, look beyond mere survival and existence and move forward and set new goals. And this was definitely true for me. I was in a place where I was just in survival and existence mode, and I have moved forward and set new goals. The Indian Journal of Psychological, Psychological Medicine also writes, quote, recovery is a voyage of self-discovery and personal growth. Experiences of mental illness can provide opportunities for change, reflection, and discovery of new values, skills, and interests.
1: Uh, Valerie, I am so glad that you found this model because I have fallen in love with it for many reasons, but it's mainly because it is the most vivid and optimistic definition of recovery that i have seen and i've seen a lot of them it it almost makes it sound like an adventure that it's not sort of only just crawling out of some pit from hell but that you're actually going to crawl someplace higher than that and this is it i wish i had known this way back when because this is again this is the most uh, abundant definition that i've heard of recovery
2: yes it's uh very um, uplifting to know that things will change. And that's one of the parts above about that quote that I love is the part that talks about opportunities for change, because I am a different person than I was before my breakdown and five-year fight into a life of recovery. I have been able to find new, true talents and fulfill them. I mean, I'm more grateful for life. I am healthier in every way. I'm closer to my family and friends. I'm more connected to my community. And Thomas Mann kind of sums this all up in this quote. No one who learns to know himself remains just what he was before. And my self-discovery, that learning to know myself, came through therapy and the 12 steps, and I indeed discovered new values, skills, and interests, one of my deepest new values now is home and re- and family. I have a deeper appreciation for my family. I have a rich spiritual life now, and I have a passion for service work, for volunteering in the recovery community, for speaking out to break down the stigma surrounding mental illness. And I never saw myself in these roles. I never saw myself as a podcaster.
1: <laughs> well, you... Um... You, you have embraced the change, which I think I found more difficult as, uh, as the process went on. But there's another model that you and I really like in terms of the stages it describes. It's from my files. And I'm sorry to say I have no idea where it came from or where I found it. So I want to say if anybody out there uh, knows this as we go through it, please let us know uh, on our uh, uh, email. It's mentalhealth Hope and recovery at gmail.com. Again, mental health, hope and Recovery at gmail.com. And we would love to hear from you. So the order that we moved through the stages in was different for each of us. We kind of, again, the back to the building blocks philosophy. Um, and as we've said many times now, recovery is an individual journey that only you can make. So let's walk through. There's six stages to this model. And let's uh, let's, uh, start just and go through them starting with one, Valerie.
2: Stage one is recognition and safety. Stage one, the recognition part, came to me while I was living in a sober house when after my husband said I couldn't come home. This happened during my seventh psychiatric hospitalization and my suicide attempt. My husband said I couldn't come home. I went to live in a sober house. And this was when I was finally able to recognize the dire state of my mental health. Now, the second part of that stage, the feeling safe, didn't come until much later. Now, stage two is acceptance. And I finally moved into acceptance of my mental health condition. After I did enough research to discover that I have a medical illness, mental illness is a medical illness. It's a biological brain disorder, and it's not my fault. And that was stage two for me, acceptance.
1: Stage three is the treatment plan and belief in the possibility of recovery. Well, my first stage to recovery started right here with stage three. So I, finally be able to get, I was able to get some traction um, because I was finally able to use the skills I had learned To begin to control my hideous thoughts and feeling, the things that have driven me all my life. And to take a few steps of positive action when I was feeling a little better. So even when I fell back, I had this flickering belief in my chance for recovery.
2: Stage four is consistent self-care. And that is what I still do. Stage four is my daily wellness plan which I described in depth when I told my story in the last episode, Helen, you're going to share your wellness plan today when you share your story in a little while.
1: Stage five, reconnect with community. Uh, I think it's difficult to describe the value of returning to the world. That's the only way I could get back was through other people, through my people. And it happened in fits and starts. Um, You know, someone would ask me to go to the theater and I'd say, well, yes, I'd really like to do that. And then two weeks later, when we were supposed to go, I felt so bad I couldn't dress myself. And so I would cancel and I went back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I was able to show up more times than I canceled. And again, it was that reconnection with people. And finally, stage six, reduction of symptoms and belief in long-term plan. Now, I returned to this stage again and again. I still do. Uh, When my symptoms were quieter, I could take action. Remember, I'm the person that keeps going. Action is all. Um, The more I could accomplish, the more I believed in my long-term future plan. But I had to put it in writing. This is something I recommend to people because even in my darkest, most hopeless hours, I had a piece of paper and my plan was on it and the way to get there was on it. And I knew that maybe I could dig my way out.
2: I know you're a big believer in journaling and that journaling is a part of your wellness plan. Now, there's another model I want to talk about. It's a model for sobriety stages of recovery. And though substance use disorder is a mental health condition, it's often looked at kind of differently. So one of the stages of sobriety um, recovery model I'd like to talk about is from SMART Recovery. And SMART stands for Self Management and Recovery Training. So these five stages start with the pre contemplation stage, where not only can you not see the solution, you don't even recognize the problem. And I have a story that really illustrates that. I went to outpatient treatment for the first time after my psychiatrist said, if you don't go to treatment, I won't see you anymore. And he was my lifeline, even at this early stage of my struggle. So I went to outpatient treatment. And one of the things we had to do was a uh, history of our drug and alcohol abuse. And mine was about 21, 22 pages long. And we had to give it in a group therapy session. And I did. And when I finished, I looked up and people's mouths were hanging open and I kind of said, "What? What's going on here?" And the therapist said, "Are you open to feedback from the group?" And I said, "Sure." And one of the people said, "You know, for somebody who looks like you and sounds like you, that is an astonishing history of drug and alcohol abuse." And I think that was what moved me into stage 2, the contemplation stage, where I thought, "Okay, maybe I have a problem." I had gone from not recognizing the problem, and I wanted to stop feeling so stuck. I acknowledged in the contemplation stage, stage two, I acknowledged I had a problem, began to think about solving it, which moves you into stage three, the preparation stage, where someone is planning to take action and are finally beginning to make adjustments before they begin to change their behavior. But in the, contempl- the preparation stage, you're still not, out of ambivalence I was still on the fence I wasn't ready to do the work required to get and stay sober from there when the ambivalence is resolved we move into action stage four is the action stage where we overtly modify our behavior and I did I began working the 12 steps now the action stage requires the greatest commitment of time and energy from action, action is all, as Helen often says, action moves us into maintenance because recovery is a lifelong wellness plan. And we, I never stop the maintenance of my recovery. Again, we've talked about, I've talked about my wellness plan. Helen's going to expand on hers. Helen, you will talk about yours. A few of my uh, ongoing lifelong wellness steps are exercise. Eight hours of sleep, trying to eat right, prayer and meditation, other mindfulness practices, therapy and medication, managing my stress, my 12-step program, not isolating. This action never ends. I will work every day for the rest of my life to stay clean and sober.
1: Well, that's amazing. And I think what's interesting to me about, I don't have a substance uh, or alcohol uh, uh, use uh, disorder, but I'm so struck by the similarities of attaining and of working towards sobriety and also working toward recovery because they, they are, they're so similar. And so much of it has to do with working against your instincts and your old habits and trying it again and again and again until you get it right uh, or get it right part of the time.
2: Talking about the stages of recovery just now has been really a great lead-in to transitioning into storytelling, which is where we're headed. And Helen, we're going to get to hear your recovery journey. Now, you and I have shared our stories many, many times and with all sorts of audiences, and we've long been believers in the power of storytelling. But you know what? If we hadn't been believers, we sure would have been convinced by the responses to me sharing my story in our last episode, because we've received so many texts and emails and phone calls. I even had a handwritten note arrive in the mail. Um, So many responses about the power of storytelling and about our discussion in our last podcast. One of the responses was, your podcast could be labeled for anyone who has completely given up Here's a lifeline of hope. We also tell our stories for our own healing. Roger Bingham said, we tell our stories in order to feel at home in the universe. I know sharing my story, knowing that my dark past is a shining light of hope to others, has really given meaning to a part of my life that was once just pain and shame and Helen, I know this is true for you, and your journey is a light of hope for me, as it has been to literally thousands of people already. So let's delve into your journey. I know you grew up in Austin, but spent 40 years living in New York. How old were you when you moved to New York, and what drew you there?
1: Well, I was born and raised in Austin, uh, but the the minute I graduated from uh, college, I went to Tulane uh, in New Orleans. um, I moved to New York and spent the next 40 years there. I moved back here to Austin several years ago. Now, because I am a New Yorker still in so many ways, the first thing you should know about me is I am a terrible driver, truly terrible. I'm used to taxis and subways and it shows. I can go for days without making an unprotected left turn because it's just too terrifying. So regardless of where you are today, you are much safer there than you are out on the road with me. Well, it's a black Honda Accord. If you see me coming, just pull over because I don't do well in tight spaces.
2: Well, since I live 10 minutes from you, I'm always looking for your black Honda Accord. (laughs) now. You are an accomplished writer. And besides writing, what are some other things in your life that are important to you?
1: Well, you're very kind, Valerie. I just say I'm a writer. I also love to read. I have a large family and many friends. People are the most important thing in the world to me. I also love anything that has a story books, movies, theater, music, politics, even the gym. You will learn something of my own story today. And I hope, in some small way, to speak on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves.
2: You know, people sometimes ask me to describe my mental health journey. And do you ever get this question?
1: Oh, I do. And you know, it's uh, it's difficult to, to describe, as you well know. I mean, people ask me, "Well, what happened to you? What's it like to have mental illness?" And I've tried to explain. But I found that words alone are inadequate. But there's a photograph from the Vietnam War. It's a little girl running down a dirt road straight into the camera. She is naked, her clothes burned away by napalm, and her little face is contorted with agony and terror. She is screaming. There are people around her on the road, but they are not paying her any attention. She is utterly alone. I call her the burning girl. And at its very worst, this is what mental illness feels like to me. It's burning, burning all alone.
2: That is such a descriptive um, picture of mental illness. It really, really gives a, a true sense of what it feels like. You once told me, that you have very few memories before the age of 8 what memories do you have
1: well i grew up in the <clears throat> excuse me i grew up in the country and i do have very few memories before the age of 8 it's almost blank but i do know i believed i was so dirty and low i should live in the barn with the animals early childhood trauma was a contributing factor no doubt but i learned over time to fake it i created a double life and it allowed me to build up a, a footbridge over the sewer. And it allowed me to keep it all inside and to overachieve for many years until I crashed.
2: You did crash, but uh, you had a very long fight. And sometimes summarizing our treatment gives a picture of that fight in our journey. Can you summarize your treatment? Well,
1: <clears throat> my medical history is roughly, <coughs> sorry, the length of Beowulf. But here are some numbers. Three hospitalizations, one lasting a year and three months. I was locked up for 15 straight months. 39 consecutive years of individual therapy, including a male psychiatrist who began a sexual relationship that lasted for six years. 64 medications in various combinations. Five diagnoses, bipolar, anorexia, clinical depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and borderline personality disorder. More than $2 million in lost salary and benefits. Like millions of Americans, I was wiped out by catastrophic illness. This, the stigma of mental illness is so great that my life was built on lie upon lie upon lie. Because, you know, I, have a, I wanted to have a job and friends and maybe even a boyfriend but i didn't know how to handle it i mean if some nice guy called and asked me to dinner what was i supposed to say well yes i'd love to but you should know that i'm profoundly mentally ill huh. so i didn't i didn't know what to do so i i i continued to lead a double life and and uh, kept it inside and that was to my detriment
2: can you talk about your symptoms and did they escalate over time
1: oh symptoms um I developed uh life-threatening symptoms, suicide attempts and acting out so extreme that for long periods of time I was cutting daily and bingeing or starving weekly. Now, n- nobody wants to act this way. I knew that my symptoms were uh, bizarre and grotesque and and just kind of mind-boggling. But there's a quote from Proust that I think helps explain it. He said, to wisdom and kindness, we make promises. To pain, we obey. So, when I was out of control, I was obeying this excruciating pain and I was trying to stop it as best I knew how. I ultimately stopped functioning altogether. I couldn't answer the door, open my mail or email, answer the phone, leave my apartment. Finally, I couldn't even leave my bedroom. I felt like I'd become a plastic bag full of big shards of broken glass that would that would poke through at any minute and I would just disintegrate and that was all that was left of me. My revered doctor told me I was hopelessly sick I would never recover and I would never work again. I was so shocked by her contempt and betrayal that I looked at her and I said you know I will devote the rest of my life to proving you wrong. And I did.
2: Yes, you did. You proved that doctor wrong, and you also proved that there is always hope, even in the darkest moments. What helped you fight your way back?
1: Well, it was, uh, you know, I think the best term is, you know, Probably it was true for you too, is that you you claw your way back into the world, and I, for me it was very slow and it's like white knuckle by white knuckle. But there were definite treatment methods that supported me. Um, my treatment has lasted 39 years, and that's way more than half my life. Please don't freak out over how long it took me to recover. I got sick in 1981. Yes, I know many of you weren't even born then, but. The treatment methods were so primitive and the medications were ghastly. So I'm far more optimistic for people who are fighting for their mental health today. Um, There's so many more weapons at hand. The um, science and and medicine are catching up. Uh, Medications are far more sophisticated. And I think the most important thing is the doctors are just smarter There is a vast body of knowledge now about these illnesses, and they can use it to help their patients. Individual therapy has been the centerpiece of my treatment, and one where I've had dismal misfortune. I made the mistake of worshiping my doctors. I never questioned them. I blamed myself when I didn't get better, and I blamed myself when I got worse. It wasn't until I found a therapist who would not let me worship her and who insisted on equality in the relationship that I began to make real progress.
2: That's important. Now, you and I both know medication isn't for everyone. And what about you? What role has medication played in your recovery?
0: Well, I think
1: you're, you're right to mention that medication can be a pretty controversial subject um, because some people recover without it. Some people it; it doesn't work, and they recover without it. Uh, And then there's someone like me, and I, I need it. I've been on drug trials since 1981, and it wasn't until 2008 that a new doctor prescribed a medication that began to work within a few days. And for the first time in my life, I was able to begin to tame the thoughts and feelings that had controlled me all my days. I will be on medication for the rest of my life. I currently take seven which is a pretty stout cocktail, but my brain needs it and the side effects are just part of the bargain. I just wish the pills didn't cost so much, but maybe they'll fix that someday.
2: Yeah, isn't that true? What about dialectical behavioral therapy? I know it plays a very powerful role in your life. Can you talk about that for a minute?
1: Uh, Thank you for bringing it up. Uh, I am a, a, a fan and a practitioner of it. Dialectical behavior therapy, (DBT) literally saved my life Uh, better still it allowed me to save my own life which is the purpose of it all what it does is it teaches dozens and dozens of skills to overcome those tidal waves of hideous thoughts and feelings that can just engulf a person and to this minute i use it dozens of times daily i'm using it even as i speak
2: are there any other treatments that were effective for you
1: there were a number of treatments um, Hospitalization was important because it kept me from killing myself. I always hated the hospitals, but I loved the people in them. They were my salvation. And best of all is group therapy. I've always learned the most from my peers because you're in a room and everyone's in the same boat and everyone gets it. And from those friends, I received wisdom and support and generosity and humor that I will never forget.
2: So let's shift into a kind of our wellness plan that we've mentioned a lot and that I've talked about in depth. You and I talk a lot about coping skills, coping strategies, and that's going to be one of the focuses of this podcast. What's, what coping skills do you rely on?
1: Well, the most significant things I need are structure and people daily. For I'm convinced that loneliness is what kills people with mental illness It's just so lonely. The DBT skills are something that I use with tremendous success. A very simple one is to smile. They've proven that smiling releases these fabulous uh, chemicals in the brain. It brightens your eyes. It opens up your face. And when I first started feeling better in New York, I swore I would never again look like a loser on the street. So I come down the elevator, cross the lobby, say good morning to the doorman, and smile. And I felt better before I hit the pavement. Exercise and sleep in appropriate measure are essential, as is a sense of humor. I would be dead without one. You mentioned keeping a journal, uh, which is something that I did over the years, and I still do because in a way it kind of has helped me write my way to recovery. When the world overwhelms me, I have finally, finally found safety through the simple act of reading in bed. But the big surprise, the real kicker, has been volunteer work. It has strengthened me in ways I couldn't have foreseen. Through teaching and speaking for NAMI and other organizations, I have found value in my long, ugly story at last. I can reduce stigma and ignorance. I can pull beauty from the darkness. I can give people hope.
2: Yes, you and I really enjoy our volunteering together with NAMI Central Texas. It's been a wonderful part of our friendship together and our journey together. And you know what? Your whole story just now is just the ultimate story of hope. And I want to thank you for sharing your dark, difficult part of your journey. You're just an inspiration to me. But now, can you tell me what your life is like for you in recovery?
1: Um, yes, I want to thank you all. You've been very uh, patient for hearing the, the dark side of my story. So, now here is the good news um, about my life in recovery. But I first have a, a kind of a major caveat. Um, like so many people, I've had a very difficult time during the pandemic, which has been now almost a year. Um, the isolation, the economy, civil unrest all have pushed me back into a dark place time and time again. But I also can clearly see the many things in my life that are worth fighting for. And I am not going to lose them. I am not going back. So here are some of the things worth fighting for. People first. I didn't see my family for six straight years, which is unheard of in my family. And now I have a great relationship with all of them. I reconnected with my friends and the world. They forgave me for not answering the phone for 10 years and swept me back into their lives. Let me tell you also more about the the good news. One of the things is New York City. My dream was to take it by storm. And you know, in many ways, I did. Despite my illnesses, I had high profile jobs at the national and international level. I was an executive at a global entertainment company when I lost everything. But as I began to recover, I wrote a play, and to my astonishment, it was produced off-Broadway, and it was very well received. And now it's been published, and it's had numerous productions around the country. Um, I finished my second play on deadline, and I don't do deadlines. And now I'm writing a book on my struggles and subsequent recovery from these these, uh, profound mental illnesses. These were the dreams of my 20s. And I am living proof that it is never too late to get your heart's desire.
2: There is so much hope in that statement, and those are amazing accomplishments. Do you have more you want to share about your life and recovery? I know there's a couple of things I know about you that are really worth sharing.
1: Well, they're worth sharing, and they're also so worthwhile to me. You know, the things in life that you... uh, find to be so gratifying that, that, uh, that I almost feel guilty doing it because it's, uh, it's, it can be so wonderful. One of those is public speaking. I flat out love it. I've spoken before the National Institute of Mental Health and in other sort of high-flown locations on the subject of mental illness and recovery. These were very important turning points in my, in my, in my path because for the first time in years, I felt like my old self again. I had thought that person was dead and it was just a question of killing myself and that would be the end of the story. But what I learned is you can retrieve your strengths and your enthusiasms and your creativity and they will take you places you never dreamed of. These are fierce, mean illnesses and you have to use every fiber of your heart And your mind and your spirit to do battle with them. But as I began to get better, I ran into a person I never thought I'd see again. Myself.
2: I love that. I found myself again, too. One thing I discovered is that I can handle big stressors, sometimes better than little annoyances. Do you find
1: this to be true? Well, I like to say that recovery is made of many successes, uh, large and small. For me, the smallest things are always the hardest. Only recently have I begun to open my mail on a regular basis. Uh, Well, on a semi-regular basis, if I'm going to tell the truth here. I still have very difficult periods of struggle within. You know, it can be pretty hard. It's like having a head full of rats. They claw at each other. They claw at me and they multiply rapidly. But now, when this happens, I have this one jot of perspective. I know what to do. And so, when I find myself on the brink of stepping off the abyss, I just say to myself, Darling, it's like talking to a seven year old, Darling, why are you looking back? You know, the past will kill you. And I'm able to pull myself back into the present into the day at hand, the hour at hand, the minute if need be. And this works about 90% of the time. It's like an Old Testament miracle. So I have learned to take one day at a time, not perfectly, but most of the time. But I never understood happiness. Joy and sorrow, the big black and white emotions, yes, but what is happiness? I used to say to my friends, look, I know the glass is either half empty or half full. But what is in the glass? And now I know. And you don't get it every day. But I want all of you to know that having the chance to tell my story with you makes me very, very happy.
2: Oh, Helen, thank you. I mean, the words thank you Mm -hmm. doesn't even seem adequate for the appreciation I have for the I mean, the really intimate journey you just shared with us, your story of pain and struggle is ultimately a story of healing and hope and inspiration. I know your story is going to offer hope and inspiration to many people, as you have offered hope and inspiration to me for many years. And I will indeed say thank you. Thank you, Helen. Well,
1: thank you, Valerie. You're going to make me start crying. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm really grateful for your your kind words. And now we're going to look at the topic of mindfulness. Each episode, we're going to close with a mindfulness practice. In case you're not familiar with it, the American Psychological Association defines mindfulness as a moment-to-moment awareness of one's experience without judgment. So Valerie, here we go.
2: Here we go. Basically, mindfulness means being aware of and controlling your experience. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to live completely in the present moment and be fully aware of our experience, whatever we're doing, wherever we are. So let's get mindful. If you're driving, be fully present in your sense of touch. Feel the steering wheel. Feel the material of the seat you're sitting on. At the next stoplight, take in the beauty of the sky. Fully immerse yourself in the moment. Maybe roll down your window and take in the sounds around you. Feel the outside air on your skin. If you are drinking coffee, really savor your next sip. Can you smell your coffee? Fully immerse yourself in the moment. If you are outside right now, maybe running or walking, look around. Appreciate the beauty you see. Fully immerse yourself in the moment. Can you take in all the scents that nature offers?
1: What does the sky look like? What shades of green are the trees and bushes? Are
2: the trees with leaves? Or are there patterns in the bare branches? Admire a beautifully landscaped yard. Fully immerse yourself in the moment. If you're walking in the city, slow down for a bit. Admire the architecture of the buildings around you. Admire the urban landscaping. Fully immerse yourself in the moment. Take in the sounds of the city. Are there conversations around you? Again, if you're drinking coffee, fully savor your next sip. Fully immerse yourself in the moment. That's it. That's a very quick mindfulness exercise. You were just mindful. Mindfulness can be a cornerstone of your recovery. It's one of the cornerstones of my recovery.
1: Thank you so much, Valerie. You know, I use mindfulness so often that it's become like breathing or blinking. I just, I don't even think. So here we are at the end of recovery stages. It would be great if some of the stages become part of your own journey, especially if you use them as stepping stones that can help build your path to living in recovery. In our next episodes, we begin our series on relationships, the connections to other people that can support, comfort, trigger, exasperate, and transform our lives and health. We'll look at key relationships, family, friends, therapists, and psychiatrists, support groups, healthy and unhealthy relationships, as well as the phenomenal gift for healing we can find in others.
2: Yes, please join us on our launch of the series on relationships in our next several episodes. I want to thank our listeners today. We are honored that you have joined us for our episode, episode two. Thank you for joining us.
1: And I leave you with our favorite word, onward. Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind, Body, Spirit FM podcast network or wherever you find your podcast.